You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. So what makes uh, Amit uh, Chatterjee so special is a, a few things. One is this, this company that he's founded and he's CEO of is, um, is truly uh, 21st century. It's at the intersection of uh, software or inter information technologies and clean technologies. So that's very interesting. One of his members of, uh, of his board of directors is a colleague of ours upstairs in MSNE, Jim Sweeney, uh, who runs the Precord Institute. Um, we also uh, are pleased that he has been an employer, thank, thank him very much, of a, a, several Mayfield Fellows in the Mayfield Fellows Program, who I think we've got him in the room as well for not only last summer, but this summer as well. And uh, like me, he loves both Berkeley and Stanford. Because I'm a Berkeley grad with him, but we also love Stanford. And we're all Stanford football fans this year, aren't we? Absolutely. <laughs> we're all Fairweather fans, even if we went to Cal. Um, so uh, that's very, very cool. And with a background in SAP and McKinsey, we can forgive him for that. He's a true entrepreneur. So let's say hello to him. Welcome to Stanford. Thank you very much. No, all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going to live that taping down saying that I actually prefer to Stanford football over Cal football when I go back to watch the games over there. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to uh, talk a little bit about entrepreneurship in this uh, wonderful new auditorium. Um, it's, a, it's a great place, and I love being part of a soft launch uh, since it's apparently not yet fully been designated. Uh, uh, designated. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about myself some of the learnings that I've had in terms of how I got to the point of building Hurrah, and then uh, talk to you about what I think it takes in terms of what are the key things that you want to know as you're thinking about whether or not entrepreneurialism is a lifestyle for you and something you want to pursue. And, and more importantly, I'm going to try to do that in sort of 15 or 20 minutes to condense it and then leave the questions open to you all because at the end of the day, the questions you're asking, probably 16 others are asking rather than me trying to anticipate what the answers are. Um, Really quick, as, I, as Tom said, I went to Cal undergrad. Uh, my father was a doctor. My grandfather's a doctor. My great-grandfather's a doctor. My great-great-grandfather's a doctor. So the assumption was already preordained that I was not even going to ever leave the grounds of a hospital, but actually choose to actually start medicine. Um, but as Robert Frost often says, you don't want to go into medicine today. Um, just kidding. Um, <clears throat> it is the path, least, the path not often taken is more often the way you want to go. Um, we, I started actually in the medical field initially in a biotech company called Therizan, which essentially took Ayurvedic medicines, brought them into the U.S. market to try and create formulary-based uh, FDA processes. We focused on arth arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is one of our first stories. Uh, very quickly, the two co-founders who are PhDs, et cetera, uh, really got the attention of Roche, and we got acquired eight months into actually designing that whole process. Uh, so I got about that much time of really what it took to be an entrepreneur, but got a really good story of trying to figure out how to do in-licensing and out-licensing. Second one I did was uh, Mark Andreessen and Jerry Yang, legends in sort of the, the internet culture, had launched by that point uh, the Netscape story, the Yahoo story. And I suddenly started to realize I could help companies get onto the internet by designing websites. And so I started doing that. And you got paid a lot for that. Uh, because it was very new, very early technologies. Um, spent a lot of time that, doing that, United Airlines, uh, Discovery Channel, M&Ms, uh, Merrill Lynch private client sites, lots of different customers across the landscape. Eventually, we got rolled up and went public because there was a lot of opportunity uh, to do that. Right? And one of the things you got to know, entrepreneurial lesson number one, don't assume that building a company versus financially engineering the company are the same thing. Just because you can go public doesn't mean you will be successful in the public markets. But I didn't know that. That was a lesson I had to learn. Um, and we went through that process, uh, a hair-raising process that while I would love to take a company public again, I would not like want to orchestrate one again. Uh, the third company I did was a chat instant messenger company. This was with two uh, brilliant Java server team members who left uh, Java, Sun Tongue Company, now part of Oracle, uh, to go and do something net new. Uh, and I got an opportunity to build uh, what was at that time one of the competitive chat instant messenger companies. We eventually sold that to Excited Home. Um, I think it's April 2000, 
I actually joined and actually put on a quote-unquote suit and joined McKinsey and Company. Uh, perfect timing, right? Because that was as the market was crashing in that era. Uh, spent a lot of time doing that, learning that, number one, uh, you know, there is value in putting on a suit and being able to credibly talk about strategy, international experience, managing disparate teams without actually owning payroll. Uh, and it became a great lesson for how to think critically and strategically. Um, I was actually recruited out of there to then work at an even older company, um, SAP, a uh, 35-year-old, 38-year-old uh, software company. I didn't even know what they did. I, you know, I, I'd always say, what is SAP, right? Uh, it was actually three, letter, three letters for German, and to this day, I still don't know what they mean, but it's SAP. It's an enterprise software company. And I worked with a guy named Shai Agassi, who was one of these great intellectual brains who really is an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. And he sort of revitalized my desire while I was at SAP to go back and do something that I could do back to now saying, taking consulting, taking the business of working at a Fortune 5000 company to working in entrepreneurial startups, could I create a new startup in a different way? And that's what led me to Hurrah. Um, spent a, a wonderful amount of time really figuring out that what I had done in the different places of where I'd made mistakes, where I'd had tremendous successes, could all now be channeled into a new story and built it from the ground up. Um, my wife, who's actually here in the audience, uh, when I talked to her about this, uh, you know, she's like, wow, that's really exciting. You want to do a brand new ground up startup where infotech and green tech matter. Uh, who's going to help you do this? And I said, well, I, you know, there's only one firm that really gets it right now that I can see, and it's Kleiner Perkins. I don't know if they're interested, but it'd be great to go and talk to them about that. And, and we went and we talked to Kleiner, and the first time, you know, when we pitched it, uh, Ray Lane, who had been a legendary ent uh, entrepreneur, or sorry, uh, uh, operator in the enterprise software space, said, hey, I don't do uh, software anymore. I'm a car guy now, right? And you kind of had to go, what does that mean? <laughs> How do you leave, like, you're one of the leaders of the space? How do you move into that story? But Ajit Nasre, who is also an enterprise guy, really sees this idea. He said, this can be big. This can be something excellent. And we started brainstorming what it could look like and really started to partner together to say, there's an opportunity to take um, infotech and green tech together and really transform a new end-to-end -end business process for companies. And so we started down that stream of basically saying, $30 billion of alternative energy technology that are being created, there's no one at Coca-Cola, News Corporation, or Safeway that knows how to consume that technology. If I walked up to you and I said, here's some biodiesel, and you've never procured biodiesel before, you don't know what to do with it, right? So there was an opportunity for us to actually start to say, we'll help become the consumer reports of alternative energy technology and drive that into the Fortune 5000. So Hurrah did that, and we actually stayed in very much a stealth mode um, for the first time that we got money. Um, and what we did was we never done that differently. That was a new thing to do, uh, which is be quiet. Right? When you build a company, sometimes the first thing you want to do is tell all your friends what you're doing, tell anybody who's willing to listen that you're going to be great. Right? We chose the opposite tact. We actually chose to actually build something that was great and then let the world find out about it. Um, and that was very important because it kept us focused. Um, so the first 18 months, the company was dead silent. People had heard of this company called Coloro, which was our stealth name. Uh, we'd go around to different green tech meetings, listen to them, talk about stuff. Uh, understand things, walk away, and then at night, myself, one of my co-founders, Udo Weibel, and the other co-founder, Volker Enders, would sit around and say, okay, what does this mean to the product that we have? How do we deliver value? And continue to iterate on the product uh, that like that. We eventually triggered that into something that we could build, and the city of Palo Alto, uh, one of our first customers, we showed it to them, and they said, wow, we'll actually play money for this. And then suddenly you knew you had a little business. And then we went to Coca-Cola and said, look at this. And they said, wow, with a couple of feature adjustments, we'll buy it, and so forth and so on. And suddenly, you got this unique traction where you felt really excited. So we now said, OK, now it's time for us to tell the world what we've done. And Hurrah actually went out on, uh, and started selling uh, 15 months ago, uh, so in June 1st, 2009, and have basically been on a whirlwind tear of being uh, gone from relatively unknown to number one in a market uh, that we participate in, which is called the Energy, Environment, and Management Market. Uh, Hurrah captured about 80% of the market share from June to, to, to December of 2009, and then continued on a relatively similar pace of 60 to 70% market share uh, through the remainder of this year, or through the, up through now this year. Hey, Jim, how are you? 
Thank you. Uh, even though this is a global audience, Jim Sweeney, one of my board members, so technically my boss is here. Um, so I'm going to have to actually be even more on point. Um, with, uh, with Hurrah, what we ended up doing was we ended up focusing on cost savings and energy efficiency. And that was fundamentally different when we came out to the market. Uh, no one else was doing this. Everyone else was talking about climate change in Copenhagen and carbon calculators. And that was what they were focused on. And when we looked at the problem, we said it's not just about calculating how much carbon that you have, but it's what are you going to do to reduce it? How are you going to find a way to change the world if all you do is you report on how much carbon you have, but you're not actually figuring out how to lower that? So we actually took that story and we said if there's a way to deploy energy efficiency, if there's a way to drive costs out of energy consumption, customers will purchase this because they will have the dual meaning of green. It's not just about the environment, but it's about profitability. Always helps corporations who still are measured, especially in the public markets, by what their performance is, that if you can align the change of environment to profitability, you'll actually see a better opportunity for them to purchase your product and engage with it. Um, so what we did was we built a very successful business um, in the US market initially. We've now expanded that into the UK market, as well as the Middle East and Japan. Um, very different. Uh, when I had first started uh, in startups, it was almost unheard of until you had you know, basically tapped out the US market that you'd even look internationally. But Thomas Friedman, who's wrote a couple of different books, has it right. There is a lot of competition. There are great ideas all across the globe because the world is flat. But more importantly, there are customers because the world is flat that can procure at the same time as Safeway, which is in Pleasanton, versus Reed Elsevier, which is based in the UK, versus someone that is based in Japan. And if you choose as an organization to simply focus on your one geography, you're going to miss a huge opportunity. So that was what Harad did. We, on the one side, focused on that enterprise, or sorry, environmental domain aspect. On the second stage, what we did was we started to really innovate around information technology. Uh, this notion of cloud computing was just cracking the surface in 2007. And my co-founder, Udo Weibel, actually looked at this and said, you know, the future is going to be in the cloud. Let's design our product and, more importantly, force our entire market to go cloud. Because the market by itself needs to be done in a way where we have community exchanges, where we've got to be able to pass information between end users, Foxconn working with Apple or Safeway working with one of its consumer packaged goods manufacturers like Coca-Cola. They've got to be able to communicate about energy. They've got to be able to communicate about the environment. So we actually pushed forward in a new, highly configurable, very leading edge software design that has now really given us the ability to scale. So some of the fun facts that my marketing team has allowed me to talk about is so far we have about 40 customers globally. Um, we have 94 countries that currently touch our product. Um, if you think about it, only 15 months out in the market, you have to now make sure that as you upload something, uh, a new patch in the system, some guy who's in Bolivia on an Internet Explorer 6.0 is starting to log in and start to play with your information. It incredibly stretched the performance of what our product had to do the first 15 months we were out. Um, we just recently signed a deal where we'll actually be deploying across 250,000 buildings uh, across uh, an entire uh, population size. So that's become very exciting. That's also going to challenge what our company is trying to do. Uh, we've done seven cloud product releases in over 21 months. And then lastly, we have uh, over uh, doubling every three months uh, the amount of data in our system. That's completely unheard of, and I didn't plan for it. Uh, when I thought about it and what I thought Hurrah would do would probably be a little bit like your financial system. You wouldn't really share it with the world. You'd kind of put it in a vault and make sure only six or seven people in your company had it. We now have customers that want thousands of people in their company to see how they're making changes around the environment. Why? Because there's a passion behind what you're doing in the environment side. And having that type of passion was what was driving um, a lot of the opportunity for customers to want to continue to get more and more people on our system, exchanging ideas. Hey, let's do a turn the lights off at 5 o'clock ride. Let's do a bike ride. Let's consider insulation for all of our uh, cold weather facilities, et cetera, doing lots of group programs and projects like that. Um, so Hurrah's gone down an interesting path. Um, and I guess if I want to take a step back and then say, well, what led to all of this success? What did, now that I've sort of explained to you, what did we do well to win in this market? 
I think there are three things uh, that my team generally is aligned on. My, number one, it's a passion for green. They actually care about the environment. They're focused on climate change. They're focused on energy as a topic that they want to go after. Secondly, it's uh, customer commitment. Um, you know, I think whether you're Zynga or whether you're Hurrah or whether you're uh, a wind farm, you always have to have passion about who you're serving. If you don't care about them, you won't be successful. And then three, it's honest and direct communications. People can actually tell us what we think inside our company. If they think it's a bad idea, they don't hold back. Um, and fourth, uh, most of my executives will, will say that the fourth, the hidden uh, cultural uh, bond of hurrah is that we're all cheap. Uh, we don't spend a lot of money, and I think frugality as an entrepreneur is very important. Um, so hopefully that's given you a little bit of a lesson around what Hurrah does. Um, you know, when I think about what we've, what we've grown to, it's been an amazing uh, journey for the last uh, two and a half years. Um, and we're now set on pace to, to enter a very interesting market. Um, and just to give you an example, right, when we got funding at Klein, with Kleiner, that was in June of 08. So basically what we saw in our landscape of competition was a couple of things. Number one, uh, guys who were, you know, two bobs in a truck competitors, right, who did small things. And we kind of looked at that and we said, wow, we're going to really be able to take over because we've got this, you know, we dust off the shiny new shingle of Kleiner and say, look at that. We're a Kleiner company and we're going to win this market. Well, June 2009, we had a new competitor enter, Tom Siebel, a billionaire who had spent a lot of money in the old days doing software. And to now he was suddenly trying to get dust off himself off and get into this space. Um, then there was also this large competitor. Uh, SAP, four months before we were going to launch, bought a company. This is a $48 billion company now entering the same space we were in, right? You can do two things in that way. One, you can roll over and die, or two, you can stand up and really try and establish world-class presence. That's what I mean by customer commitment. Because we serve our customers better, because we care about what we do, customers see that. They see the brand of the employees that we've built, and they see the technology, and they get excited about it, and they want to invest in it. And they want to invest in it along with us in form of risk sharing. Because if they can get the success of that passion around what Hurrah is into their company, they know they can be successful around the energy and environment footprint. So at that, this point, I've kind of given you the landscape of who we are, what we did, competitors. Um, I'm now going to shut up and actually turn it over to you all. Uh, Steve? Thanks, Amit. Um, I'm Steve Blank. Uh, our class, MSNE 178, the spirit of entrepreneurship surrounds the ETL lectures. And those of you uh, from 178, raise your hands. Uh, good, I'm glad some of you showed up today. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's about a third of the audience here and millions more uh, out, in, uh, uh, out in space. Uh, normally, our class gets to ask the first couple of questions, but Amit generously volunteered to actually walk next door at the end of this session and sit in our class so those of you registered in 178 can ask them those questions directly. So uh, why don't you hold your questions, my students, and uh, let the rest of the audience uh, ask theirs. So let me pass it off uh, to the rest of the audience. Yes, sir. What's your competitive advantage, uh, for example, regarding a such a mobile like SAP? What your competitive advantage <laughs> is uh, Could you a couple yeah, what is the competitive advantage uh, that Hurrah has over its competitive uh, competitors? Number one is we do more than what they do in terms of we're not just a product, but we have a service component to our story, which is we actually help the company see the reductions over time. Number two is patents. Number three is creating partners. Number four is really people. As you start to build companies around this space, uh, you can have two options. You can make it something that is part of a rounding error of your organization right, in terms of revenue, where it is today with SAP, or you can truly say we're going to invest and rethink an entire landscape and define a market every time we release a new product. And that's what Hurrah's done over the last seven product releases. Um, and that isn't easy to defend, but it is something that you continue to have to push, motivate your employees, drive your uh, strategy and vision to continue to differentiate yourself. Yes? Um, how many people of capital did you have when you started, because this is like business to business, not like business to consumer like Facebook, where you need like two or three people and like a few thousand dollars. So just one. Yeah. First round, Series A, we raised six million. Then Series B, we raised another 14. So we've taken about $20 million into the company. 
Yes. Um, I understand that the company is, uh, has a very new concept, like it's a very newly founded company. So I'm wondering, um, are most of your customers from developed countries? Or like how are your companies doing in developing countries where like their environmental conscience is not that high? Yep. So the question was, is this a developed company solution versus a development company, a developing country solution, uh, given the fact that it's a relatively new topic? Um, the answer is, it's, it's varied upon the passion that the government or the companies that are operating in those countries are thinking about this. Um, one organization I was working with that is in a developing country said, look, you know, we have to deliver power to customers. And to open a new power plant, we could spend two, three billion dollars, or we could deploy a billion dollars of energy efficiency and potentially serve more people, but not have to spend the additional two billion dollars. And if we can adjust that, that makes sense. And that was a developing country's uh, comment on this. Uh, other situations, I'll be in a developed country, they won't get this idea, and they won't be passionate about it. And you just have to know that that's just not a customer at this time. You move on and you invest elsewhere. Yes, sir. Do you have any international problems with uh, having international class cloud, as in uh, BlackBerry and everybody seems to be having trouble in the Middle East? If you have a cloud set up that has 94 countries feeding into it, does that mean you have 94 lawyers writing uh, petitions? <laughs> uh, we try to minimize our imp Yeah, sorry. Uh, the question was, do you have uh, issues that, uh, similar issues to what RIM has had around legal issues around where data is flowing uh, in 94 countries? And the answer is, so far, not yet. Uh, we haven't had that issue. Uh, many of the countries, because energy and environment is more of a collaborative effort around a global problem, the answers have been generally that we, they've allowed us to actually continue to, to manage our business in, a, in the appropriate way. Yes, way in the back. What's your view on the Indian markets for the clean tech? I'm sorry. Indian oh, what's my view on the Indian markets for clean tech? Um, it's gone through phases. Uh, in 2008, 2009, I didn't believe that the Indian market was very focused on this space. I think what I've seen in 2010 is very promising. Uh, I've seen the new minister of the environment step forward and really start to begin to dictate a very compelling strategy. More importantly, I've started to see real corporations in India that are currently operating in the Fortune 5 the global five, Fortune 5000 story start to invest even more. And I'm getting more excited that there are going to be more customers and more importantly, more technology innovations happening in India around clean tech. And they're going to actually take uh, that as a, a major strategic way, especially when you consider that they're landmass constrained relative to their neighbor that's always being compared to, which is China, that they have to deliver more power with less landmass and they have to be much more efficient at what they're using in the energy space. Yes, sir. How did you build your founding team? You know, that's an interesting thing. Um, there's an old adage in real estate, right? Location, location, location. The same thing holds true on entrepreneurialism, which is team, team, team. But you never spend money on real estate. Um, the team is, in fact, probably the most important thing. Um, and I took a big risk um, with, with the team that I had uh, because it had never been done before. Uh, we brought on a services person, services salesperson, very early on, Volker Enders, uh, very early on into the organization because we needed to learn about how customers were actually thinking about energy and environment. And uh, we brought on, I talked to Udo, who I'd worked with as a peer at SAP. Uh, he was uh, recruited by Kleiner into this space uh, to want to do something. We kind of met together. We saw a vision. It made sense. We built the company together. Uh, and then lastly, with Lorena joining the company, that was helpful because she could run a lot of the HR finance aspects so that, frankly, the three of us, Volker, Udo, and Amit, could go and do the stuff that was customer-facing or development-facing and allowed the house to sort of remain standing while we went and tried to do that. Uh, I think that combination has worked very well, um, but the key piece that was sort of the, the definite glue after that was Chris Farinacci, who, brought, who came on to become the chief marketing officer uh, what he did was he provided a red thread of communication across the disparate or entities of the organization to really launch us into what I think the Hurrah brand means today. Yes, sir. Um, how do you see the market evolving? You're, you were mentioning your competitive landscape involves a lot of enterprise software, but as like energy service companies like uh, 
Enernoff moved into that space where they have other services that they're going to bundle with uh, carbon tracking, et cetera. How would that change the market? Well, they ha we actually do compete with them, um, slash partner, right? Um, Co-optition in this space is very large because we're talking about a multi-trillion dollar market of which the software slash um, bundling of services can be a 25 to $30 billion market by the time all said and done. So right now, the focus for us is if you think about what each of these pieces do, whether you're a building maintenance management company, uh, you happen to be like a demand response company like an Enernoc, you happen to be an HP that manages data centers, you can always have different levels of energy management at your one scale, but you still need a global enterprise software piece that is going to have to sit across all of that and do the finance analysis around which project to do where. And Hurrah has differentiated itself by continuing to sort of be the brain while the rest of the clean tech space has been much more of the nervous system, meaning that they do their functions exceptionally well, but someone in the end needs to crunch those numbers for the CFO to say, direct invest here. Yes? If you were in our shoes right now, what kind of company would you launch? <laughs> um, Obviously, I'd do a green tech uh, software company. Uh, secondly is I would probably look at healthcare. Um, I forgot where you are. It's, uh, the question was, what companies would I do? Sorry about that, Tom. Uh, what, companies would I, what companies would I try to launch? Um, I've been very interested in what I've seen in healthcare so far um, in terms of how government regulation is moving into it, how uh, insurance companies are thinking about it, and more importantly, how difficult it is for patients to deal with the system today around that, that entire space. Um, I look at that as a very exciting space. The other area that I've always been a big fan of is biotech. Um, and I don't mean to differentiate between biotech and nanotech, so I won't. Um, but I think that that area is slowly starting to get um, the proper recognition it needs to sort of advance. I mean, a lot of times I'll look at what Craig Vintner has done and I say, how can he not have a movie made about him, but we've got one for Mark Zuckerberg, right? There's something fundamentally different the disconnect in, in what we think sells versus what doesn't, but what Craig Vintner is doing is equally, if not 20 times more impressive. Um, so I, I would want to participate as an entrepreneur in that space if I had the mental acuity. Yes? Um, was there any significance in the name Hurrah or the pseudonym Hurrah? Uh, both of them are derivatives. Uh, so Hurrah is in Sanskrit for fresh green. And since we needed a stealth name, we, used, uh, we took the S off of chloros. Uh, because it was already licensed by somebody else. Uh, Greek word for green. Yes? Yeah, what are the major mistakes, if any, you and your company have made, and what have you learned from those? Good question. What are the big mistakes we've made? Um, so I'll tell you, the number one mistake that any entrepreneur can make, uh, and I've been guilty of this many times often, is when you know that, that somebody doesn't fit in the company, get them out. Right? It's just easy. It's a big mistake. You can, you, if you don't think about what talent fits for your culture, for your team, you will continually be in this perpetual notion of where a third of the people are 100% passionate for you, a third of the people are willing to be led, and there's a third that are always going to moan because they're not happy. And I think what you need to do is figure out who those people are, figure out if you can change them, and if you can't, then have them move on in a different direction than where your company's headed. You have too many things on your plate to worry about that part of it. They've either got to be on the boat or not. And I think you can go down real fast as a company if you don't focus on that. That's my big, my big learning number one. Yes, sir. Um, did, did you have a product when you went to Kleiner for financial? No, nope. did not. Had a concept. And a team. Had a concept and a team. How many people in your team? Four. Yes, ma'am. Um, we were talking earlier about how you wouldn't want to like orchestrate another company going public. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you faced the first time around? Well, I think you have to have, um, so that company in particular entailed services companies that were regionally focused, very little common technology, uh, a division that had been ripped out of another public company that could then participate in this company. So culturally, some people had stock options, some people didn't. Some people were hoping their career would be measured based on their career projections, which works in a large company. Other people were being very entrepreneurial and didn't want to be managed. And suddenly what happens was, is if you can't have and identify synergies in an acquisition, what happens is people then begin to gravitate towards what they've done normally that works, which means that you become highly inefficient. And that's what stretches it apart. 
So it wasn't the act of going public, it was the nature of the merger event first and then going public that led to that, that complexity. What does it mean to go public and what is the alternative? Uh, the, to go public, the question was what does it mean to go public and what's the alternative? Um, to go public means that you actually sell some of your shares to the public markets so they can invest in the company. And then it becomes tra a tradable commodity on either the NYSE, the NASDAQ, or uh, one of the myriads of other trading exchanges that have opened up. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in you don't build to flip, you build to last. Um, so I've always looked at it as that becomes the next necessary financing vehicle for a startup that has been built the right way. At some point, venture, venture capital, the trade-off cost for going to venture capital becomes very intensive. Going to the public markets provides you a much cheaper way to actually be able to accomplish international scaling, quadrupling the size of your company, expanding, doing acquisitions. Um, so I would look at it as that there's one direction, um, but there are many alternative financing mechanisms beyond going public. You could continue to go to venture route. You could continue to go private equity. Um, but ultimately, uh, I think that that's, that's just one mechanism of, uh, of a financing strategy for a company that's being built to last. Yes. So I, I believe most of the sustainability solutions out there, I think companies are using them mostly for reporting, CSR. How many of your 40 customers do you think are actually taking the information out of Hara and improving their supply chains and business network? I would say nearly all of them are. Um, most of our customers, because of our price point, because of the, the way we've designed our product, it's not a momentary reporting solution, but it's, a, it's not a sprint, right? You run really crazy over two or three months to get there to report and then you forget about it, we're actually more of the marathon. Um, and in fact, someone recently explained to me that we're not even a marathon, we're much more like a triathlon where you have sprint or a Tour de France, where you have a sprint say, you have a marathon day, and then you kind of switch on and off. And that's really what we are, which is funny because we have a huge a number of cyclists that have signed up at Hurrah, coincidentally. Um, <clears throat> so a Tour de France type mentality is what we've put together with us as a team, as well as with our customer base. Uh, yes? Uh, what share of the value that you produce for your customer comes out of um, ready-made software, and what share comes out of the consulting that goes What's the, it's a, the question was, what's the service revenue, what's the product service revenue mix? Um, uh, so I'm, I'm curious about both the revenue mix, but also the, the actual value that's produced because um, oh, the value there, can, there can be a difference, right? Yes. So uh, number one, to give you an example, we have about six people uh, in our services business. So it is generally 15% of any deal uh, that we take. So it's not a huge number. Um, most of the value actually accrues through the software um, by marrying best practices of what we've identified that has worked from other companies, or what Hurrah has identified as a community story, or what has actually come out of uh, our partners who are pre-populating our data by saying, if you happen to be this facility in Atlanta, Georgia, and you have this kind of roof, these are the kinds of strategies you might want to deploy. Um, so most of our balance or most of our value is actually driven through the software um, because we've tried to create it very much as a community uh, network uh, situation where we're not only providing the, pro the solution, but we're providing a solution and a mechanism for communication across the community of people on Hurrah to be able to solve the problem along with the customer that's looking for it. Yes, in the back. It's a very slightly engineering oriented question. Do you gather inputs from which you produce your output dynamically from things like smart meters? Or is it purely on the basis of survey and geography and who's like this? Or and what trend do you expect to see? So the question was, how do we gather a lot of the inputs before we make the recommendations? Within each facility, uh, what we can do is we'll identify the best way to gather the best proxy for what that facility looks like. And generally, there are four ways that we do it. One is web services. So if you happen to have data that's being gathered in one system that you've already purchased, we can pull the data from that. The second is what we would call um, EDI 810 integration with a utility. So provided a utility actually has billing data that it can push down in 15-minute increments, they'll chunk it up into 96 batches. They'll push it down into the hurrah system. Third is manual upload. 
right? You fat finger entry uh, utility bills because you're Peruvian. All you do is you get a you get a you get a bill from somebody uh, from Peru, and your account payrolls people are the only people that actually touch that bill. And then the fourth way is through Excel uploads. Um, a lot of times, these different systems that have the data, whether it's an iTron system or a smart meter, as you were asking, they may actually publish this data and pull it and dump it somewhere else. We'll just extract it from Excel and then suck it back in. What it does is it turns that input into a very important output, right? The different measures of what we can do around greenhouse gas, wastewater, solid waste, and then potentially actually cost saving reductions. Yes, sir. What portion of your customers are public or governments and nonprofits versus private companies, and how does your approach differ? Great question. So the question was, what's the mix of our customer base between private and public sector companies? Um, I think we're about two-thirds corporate customers and one-third government in that neighborhood. Um, and the approach is very different. Uh, the, the municipalities and the states and the federal governments oftentimes are very sophisticated because regulation has already hit them. They've either signed up for a climate action reduction program, so they have to show 20% reduction by 2012 or 40% reduction by 2020, um, whereas the, pub, the private sector is making the decision based on a cost basis, right? Energy efficiency, the less I use, the less I pay. So fundamentally, when you go into a story with a municipality, the cost savings will carry you so far, but secondarily, the ability to actually show and demonstrate that change to build the brand so that the city of Las Vegas can tout that you know it's trying to go neutral, right, is a very important story for the city of Las Vegas or the city of Philadelphia, both of which are our customers. On the other hand, large organizations that we work with, like Safeway or News Corp, are sometimes doing this because there is a tremendous cost opportunity that they now have because they're starting to explore energy in a fundamentally different way, right? Energy used to be invisible, reliable, and you know, literally that was all you worried about. You didn't think about energy. You know, Al Gore and many of the others on the climate change side have raised that awareness, but nevertheless, it's now something where you're like, wow, this is an opportunity. I actually, just a quick side story, I knew I had a business when we walked into one of our customers and I said, what do you think your energy footprint is? What do you think your bill is? And he said, oh, I don't know, 50 to $80 million? I said, try a quarter of a billion. I saw the eyes pop out, right? And I knew I could actually help somebody. I read a similar story in the Blueprint to a Billion of how the Staples guy actually found out that he had a business. He went to the same thing, went to a law firm, told the exact same story, found out that the supply, the supply purchasing for that law firm was five times the price of what he could deliver. So Hurrah sees that same kind of pattern and we're very excited about that because we think we can add a lot of value that way. Yes, sir. I'm trying to understand how cash flows in and out of your company and uh, how far you can be profitable. Uh, the, uh, how, the question is how far are, along are we on cash flow profitability? Um, we don't actually talk about that uh, private, uh, in, in public settings, but I could talk to you afterwards. Yes, sir, in the back. Uh -huh. Well, it depends on what your measure of success is. Um, you know, I don't think it's always about the financial outcome. I think sometimes it's about the lasting impact you're going to have. Um, so, you know, I wrote down a couple of things like that, that in case somebody did ask me this. Um, <clears throat> I think you have to demand excellence. You have to build a culture in your organization where everybody is great at doing something amazing. Um, number two, you hire the best. You never compromise on that topic. Um, you make sure that everybody walking into, the, into your organization is going to be someone that you're going to be able to learn from. If you're better than your sales guys, then you, they, you shouldn't bring them in. If you're better than your PR person, then you shouldn't bring that person in. But you should be in a situation where you can learn tremendously from them, and that's a way to hire your boss. That's a great way to live. The third one I would say is, is you focus on value creation. I think a lot of times companies focus on the financial outcome, but I think if you focus on the customer and you say, I'm going to make this company get its goal 
because I'll be dragged along with their success. And I think if you focus on the customer, you'll accomplish that in this space. In the consumer space, it's very simple. Every release you guys have, you're never going to touch the customer other than that way. right? So if you're going to go out into the consumer space, make sure your product released is brilliantly construed. Because that's going to be the only way the customer, that last customer is going to be your last reference effectively. Um, fourth, I think this is something that really matters. Advisory board. Surround yourself with the best and brightest minds. Uh, because they're the ones in the times of crisis, whether it's operations or a new energy story, you're going to be able to pull them to be able to understand what to do next. Because there will be times where as, as confident as a CEO you are, you will not know what direction to go in. And you've got to be able to have a team around you that you can follow through on. And fifth, just build it. Believe you can be successful. You know, I'm trying to steal a Nike slogan, but we'll call it just build it, right? Yes, sir, in the back. How do you balance your family life with your, your entrepreneur? <laughs> Next question. Uh, no, the question was, um, uh, how do I balance family life and, and entrepreneurialism? And the reality is, you know, it's a, it's a tough trick. Um, but what you can do is sort of have timeouts, right, where you actually turn off the cell phone, you put away the, the business, and you just focus on family. Um, and that requires a lot of discipline. And oftentimes, you know, you will, you will worry. There, the stress part will drive, will fall into your, your, your domestic life. And you have to be able to be smart enough to be able to take a step back and go, you know what, I can't do anything about the company there. I've got to focus on the family here. And actually, the best example story that I heard about this is the difference between pressure and stress. Um, so do you all remember the story of William Tell? You know, when he shot the bow and split the apple and, and on his son's head. Someone told me the perfect story about this. He said that if you imagine William Tell, he's under pressure. His son is in stress. <laughs> right? Great example. So, because he can't control, he's got. So the question was, what in my market is what we're doing? Uh, what are we doing? To, 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 what are the biggest challenges that we face in our market? Uh, I'd actually say that no matter what business you're in, uh, as an entrepreneur, there are some things that you always worry about. I think number one is pipeline. Uh, you will have customers that in the near term will turn you down, uh, no matter what business you're in. Some days you'll have less downloads if you have to be a consumer-based company, or you'll lose an enterprise deal, or you'll lose a big government contract. The reality is you should, as a CEO, you should never focus on the current quarter. You should be worried about building the pipeline. Because at some point the day will come where that pipeline will be so rich that the, second, the immediate quarter will take care of itself. I think the second thing is you always have to be focused on people and team. Uh, those core values that I talked about, driving that into the company, enables you to be able to scale. It allows me to spend more time doing this, or meeting with customers, or meeting with partners, than going back to the office and figuring out whether or not our balance sheet is appropriate. Right? I have to be able to delegate some aspects. I think third is uh, you know, the challenge that you always have is consistency. I mean, we were just looking at this the other day. Uh, between the, the months of November to January, of this, from last November to January of this year, we doubled in size, right? How did you ensure that the culture got consistent? How did you ensure that people got the same message that had been there when it was 20? Because when it's 20, you can have lunch with your entire team around the table. Now you have to suddenly deal with the sale. And by the way, half these people don't even sit in our core office anymore. They're scattered all across the US or in, in the UK or in the Middle East. Um, and last but not least, never confuse that the product is the vision, right? Oftentimes, especially since I'm talking to engineering entrepreneurs, the product sometimes, you know, coding is 5% of the solution. 
don't, don't ever have let my CTO know that. But it, it is only a portion of the story. And the product versus the vision of where you're headed and what we're navigating through through those externalities is equally important. And that right now is one of the challenges because when you look at the market I'm in, energy and environment management has pretty much taken a, a, a Mike Tyson, Michael Spinks type beating over the last few, you know, uh, last few, few months. Should I have done a UFC one so that you guys knew what I'm talking about? Um, you know, a complete pummeling of, of regulations going awry, of gas prices not going as high as they would be, right? If gas prices were higher, there'd be more people worried about their energy bills. Uh, we've seen uh, situations where people are now trying to repeal AB 32. So there's all these regulatory competitive areas. And if you continue to just focus on the product, you're going to miss the point of where the vision, where you need to steer the company to get it to the next level. Yes, sir. Uh, you talked a lot about hiring the best and building a great team. Mm -hmm. So how do you actually attract talents to your company, especially during these early stages, stealth mode? The, well, yeah, stealth mode was probably the most difficult. Hey, come work with me. What are you doing? Can't tell you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, what you do do is you, you talk about the art of the possible. Um, what I'm a big fan of is we're here today, but we could be this tomorrow. And I think by giving somebody uh, excitement and passion and, in, you know, generally if you have an idea, you're excited about it. Share that passion with somebody, and if they resonate that passion and they build on it and they go home and they tell their wife or their husband about it, they get excited and they come back to the company and you feel the passion coming back. That's how you recruit them, is you really sell a part of you and, and a part of what you're going to deliver to them and that they're going to have an opportunity to put their fingerprints on your business. That's amazing because it no longer becomes your business. It becomes our business, right? And I think that's what you have to do. Uh, the second thing is you've got to make it a big part of your job, right? If you happen to be a technical guy or a sales guy, you can spend a ton of time doing everything else but recruiting. But recruiting is a core asset of being able to go through a bunch of people, and eventually find the right person that you can join, that can join the company. Yes, sir. You said that keeping the company hidden helped you keep your focus. How do you think that affected market reaction to the company once you uh, let it be known? Uh, the question was uh, keeping it stealth, and then what was the implication when we actually released the company? Um, I think we shifted the market. Um, we. When we came out of stealth mode, we did a couple of things. Number one, we actually had customers. We had customers that were testifying on our behalf, saying, this is a really special company. These are really special people. This is a really special product. Number two was we shifted the mindset of what you could do in energy and environment management. Before we got there, everybody thought it was about CSR reporting and a carbon calculator. When we got to this space, it became about cost savings, the opportunity to drive energy strategically in an organization. And I think when we did that, we reshifted re the business prospects and reporters, prospects, and uh, partners had a latent demand. Like there was a, a desire to not have to go completely to, you know, drilling my own oil well, but away from just simply carbon reporting. And in the middle was what hurrah filled. Yes. So knowing what you know now, and thinking back to those Berkeley days as an undergrad in chemistry and political science, why do you think it's important for students to learn about entrepreneurship and innovation? I think, uh, so the question was, uh, what, why is it important to learn about entrepreneurship? Um, you know, I think there's something that I heard someone once say, you are the CEO of what? Right? And uh, it's a story uh, that emanates from, from Jim Collins' books where he's talking about the Empire State Building and at the bottom floor there's a guy clearing garbage out. And you know, they ask him, you know, what do you do? And everyone's kind of like, well, this is obvious. You know, you're, you're clearing garbage out. And the guy said, my responsibility is to make the Empire State Building immaculate for when people walk in the next day. He was the CEO of the cleanliness of that building, right? Entrepreneurship is about finding value in what you do, not about getting the right organic chemistry equation to balance, or not, in political science, we explain 5% you know, of the world 95% of the way through. 
It's not about that. It's about finding what it is that you do that every day you wake up, you're excited about. Right? Magic Johnson uh, once said that the world he lives in is so exciting, he doesn't need an alarm clock. Right? First few companies I had, I never had that feeling. Now I have that feeling. I don't need an alarm clock to get out of bed because the excitement that I have around what I do, just passion drives me to want to get out. And I think that's where entrepreneurialism gets really exciting. Yes. How did knowing the right people and having certain connections impact your success? How did knowing the right people and the connections have the right success? Um, I think it definitely helps. Uh, but it is, it is what opens the door, right? And then once you're in that door, it's up to you to actually to, to work that story. Uh, a great example is actually how I got in touch with Jim Sweeney. Um, I had an advisory board member named Sam Chu, who's also a, a professor at Stanford. Uh, he got me a meeting with Jim around what we were trying to do. And it was that meeting, I had that one shot, right? And I had to know that I had no way to turn back uh, to get him to convince him to come and become a, a board of directors member. And by the way, Jim, that was your first board of directors, isn't that? It's the first one I said yes to. And in fact, I have several Later. other no, seriously, I had several other opportunities, and I always said no. But this, there was a vision of changing the world in ways that was absolutely consistent with my value structure and what I was doing, and a belief, and uh, and uh, amid communicated uh, an idea that they were going to succeed in doing it. So it's a vision and the probability of success. I said, okay. We're <laughs> trying. <laughs> All right. Let's do one. I'm sorry. No, it, 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 I didn't want to interrupt. But one more question. Okay. Last question. Who wants to? Ellie, you got to have one. You already asked him over the summer. One of our Mayfield fellows. What, what, what's, uh, what's the biggest thing that you've taken away from your experience in Hurrah relative to your experience in previous startups? What, what is the biggest thing that's different this time? The, what is the biggest thing that I've taken away from Hurrah versus the other startups? Um, I think it's truly a passion around making an impact uh, of not just being successful, but hopefully Hurrah will be seen as a significant company because over time what we will have done is taking kilowatt hours out of the utility problem that we see in the environment and the energy world today. And I think that that fundamental connection that I can have to my children, their children, is fundamentally different than what I had done in previous companies. And so I feel that that's really the biggest difference between hurrah and everything else I've been involved with. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.